Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Now, as a relatively young student of history, I was thankfully spared many of the outright colonial myths that used to monopolize the story of America's westward expansion, the variations on the frontier thesis that were often repeated in high school textbooks, college classes, and even scholarly tomes. In large part because of the pioneering work done by historians in the 1970s and 80s, and of course the impacts of Native activism more generally, that story has been thankfully complicated, if not utterly turned on its head. When I did encounter American Indian history in high school or college, and it was in fact still far too rare, The story was no longer one of triumph, but of tragedy, and on occasion, resistance. Nowhere was this new telling of history more profoundly felt than in the assimilation campaign launched by the federal government in the late 19th century, the program of cultural coercion administered by a growing colonial bureaucracy known as the Indian Service, or later, as the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The story was now one of traumatic boarding schools, reservation poverty, and outbursts of state violence. But is there more than this much-improved narrative offers? To subvert the story of triumph, should we focus solely on tragedy? Well, in Kathleen Cahill's brilliant new book, Federal Fathers and Mothers, students of history have now what's been sorely missing, a social history of the Indian service. The people who made up this agency, Cahill tells us, were not simply functionaries, but agents in their own right, including the thousands of American Indians who also worked for the Bureau. Here we find their often surprising stories, their ambivalent motivations, and the intimate impacts of the work they performed. But for as much as this work uh, explores the characters who made up the Indian service on the ground, Cahill isn't afraid of asking big questions either placing the federal government's assimilation campaign firmly in the broader story of American political development and the creation of a powerful welfare state. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Dr. Cahill, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm glad you could be here today. 
Thank you so much for having me. This is really a wonderful opportunity. I'm thrilled to be here. Of course. So today we're discussing uh, your new book, Federal Fathers and Mothers, A Social History of the Indian Service, 1869 to 1933. It's just out from the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, Your book does something quite remarkable here in humanizing what's often told as a faceless bureaucratic process, namely the federal government's campaign to uh, control and assimilate American Indians in the late 19th and early 20th century by peopling, so to speak, this government undertaking by viewing these people not as functionaries, but historical actors in their own right. Uh, you make some rather surprising discoveries and uh, and reveal some elements of the Indian service heretofore entirely missed. Uh, but before we launch into some of those rather surprising findings, I'll just ask by uh, having you to introduce yourself and tell us uh, how you came to be working on this particular historical project. Sure. Um, well, I currently am an assistant professor in history at the University of New Mexico, which is a a really wonderful place to be for someone who studies Native history and Western history. Um, I did my graduate work at the University of Chicago, and before that, my undergraduate work at the University of California at Davis. And in terms of coming to the project, it was actually um, when I graduated from UC Davis, and um, my aunt and uncle gave me a book of local history um, from Northern California, which is where I'm from, And it was the memoir of two women um, from New York, sort of respectable ladies, who had taken a position in the federal government in 1909 to go out and work on the, um, up in uh, Hoopa and Yurok country, up in Northern California, as field matrons. So it was this federal position in the Indian service, and their job was basically to go into Native women's houses and teach them housekeeping um, particular form of housekeeping. And um, that part of the world uh, where they were stationed is very isolated from white communities it's out in the mountains. Um, and it struck me when I read that that this was seemed unusual to me in terms of what respectable white women were doing at the turn of the century. Um, they can't vote in federal elections. Um, at the time, I didn't know that they were doing quite as much as I now know that women were doing, but I was I was curious, and so it sort of took off from there. Um, I ended up writing the master's thesis on that program and then expanded it um, for the dissertation into what would ultimately become the book and a look at the whole Indian service. So it was somewhat serendipitous, uh, my way into this project. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I look forward to actually exploring a little bit later in the interview uh, what drove uh, women to head out west and, and participate in the Indian service. Uh, but I want to start by asking you to lay out some of the key themes in the book, uh, beginning with the, the differing strategies of colonialism you sort of pull apart and explore, uh, most notably intimate colonialism. Uh, I'm hoping you can explain that term and, uh, and where you place the Indian service in these sort of different categories of colonialism. Sure. Um, there are two sort of terms that I use quite a bit in the book, um, as you mentioned, intimate colonialism, um, but also settler colonialism. And basically, settler colonialism um, is a term that scholars have been using for a little while, but it's really become some a term that, that has been useful in thinking of the Native experience um, in the United States, but also in places like Canada and Australia. Um, and that these are places where what has traditionally been thought of as colonialism, um, of sort of going into a place and extracting its resources, um, 
sort of in the way we think of, of European countries right up through uh, World War One, World War Two. It happens differently in these in the U.S. and Canada and Australia in that um, people uh, from Europe come and settle and stay. Um, and in extractive colonialism, it's there's maybe a small administrative force, maybe a military force, but there isn't large-scale settlement. And so with settler colonialism, the, the questions are a little bit different um, that the colonizers are, are dealing with. And it's basically what do you do with the indigenous population um, in order to create a space for your own population to settle? And, and so by starting um, with that and thinking about the experience of, of the United States, you begin to then ask, well, what did the U.S. decide to do with its indigenous populations? And... Um, and that's where I get to the intimate colonialism um, portion of things. Now, the government, the federal government had been sort of dealing with Native nations for a long time before 1869 when I pick up the story. But I argue that after the Civil War, the government really uh, turned to what they called the Indian question and invested enormous amounts of resources in it. And so it, it's a a useful place to pick up that story. And one of the strategies um, for dealing with the indigenous population, especially in the Trans-Mississippi West, was this um, intimate colonial model. And that was really to uh, focus on sort of the very most intimate relationships between people, um, particularly relationships between um, husbands and wives, uh, parents and children, and um, the federal government wanted to disrupt those relationships and uh, reformat them in a sense. Um, intimate colonialism really thinks about both biological reproduction as well as social reproduction and how those things are happening. And so um, the federal government went in with the intent of breaking up tribal communities breaking up the relationships um, that people had in those communities, and again, down to those very, very basic um, interpersonal relationships. And then um, they wanted to replace a lot of those, um, the relationships that Native people had with each other uh, with relationships between Native people and whites. And this is really the most visible in the boarding schools, but it happens in other places. Um, in the ways in which the government was hiring white employees, both men and women, to serve as basically surrogate parents for Native children. And so that's um, in many ways where the title of my book comes from. They were hiring them to be federal fathers and mothers. And so they were breaking the relationship between Native parents and Native children and then substituting sort of new uh, fictive kin um, into that relationship. And the hope was that if they did this on a large enough scale, that they could basically reorient all of those Native children um, to what they would have termed sort of civilized living, and that in one generation, the federal government could have assimilated sort of all Native children, and that would have been a very easy solution, um, according to them, to the Indian problem. So it's very much a process of, again, sort of going in and thinking about these relationships that people have with each other on a very small scale and one that usually isn't thought of as a political scale, right, that, that we often talk about the household or the family as the private 
domain. Um, but in fact, uh, these strategies of intimate colonialism put those relationships at the very forefront of issues of conquest and issues of assimilation. And in terms of scale, your, your book uh, sort of brilliantly brings us in really uh, close to these intimate encounters and then scales back because in a lot of ways you're also, um, this is a, a big project in the sense that in your introduction you, you say you're taking up and expanding upon Richard White's assertion that the West served as the kindergarten of the American state. What do you mean by that or, or how, what does Richard White mean by that and how are you taking that up and expanding that sort of macro thesis about American political development or the, the development of the, the welfare state as we know it? Well, um, I, I hope that I have succeeded. The right Richard White is sort of a a big uh, he sets the scale high. Um, he basically is asserting that in terms of political history or policy history, um, those scholars that study that aspect of U.S. history often ignore the West um, or sort of treat it as. A sort of aside. Well, we know the federal government was involved in the West, and then they sort of go back to whatever they were talking about without really talking about how uh, the federal workings in the West uh, changed the rest of the nation, right, and really changed um, government in the East. And his argument is that the West is the kindergarten of the state, a place where the federal government learned to do a lot of things and then brought those that knowledge back um, to the metropole, as it were. And um, where I really saw this happening, and I'm not sure, I, I, I make a little play where I say if it wasn't the kindergarten of the state, it was certainly the middle school. Um, I see Reconstruction mm-hmm. as being a place where the federal government learned to do a lot of things on very large scales. And I'm not the only one to say that, obviously. But they take what they've learned out um, into the Trans-Mississippi West and into Indian policy, and it's particularly... Um, in terms of questions about uh, what we might call welfare um, or social programs, that you see the federal government really sort of stretching itself um, in Indian policy uh, much to a much greater extent than it did in Reconstruction. So something like the Freedmen's Bureau was really the first time that the federal government got involved in issues like education, um, like marriage, um, questions that were, were left to the state government in the Constitution. Um, but with the freed slaves, before they are given citizenship, um, as well as with Native people, they're considered wards of the government. And so the federal government is in charge of them, not the states. And so it, um, again, sort of starting with the Freedmen's Bureau, but which only lasts for a very, very short period of time, two years, and then especially in Indian policy, the federal government begins to work in areas especially concerned with women and children, and again, through education in particular, that it never had before. Um, and what I found by thinking about it this way was that um, something scholars call the maternalist welfare state, where um, federal policies aimed at women and children often uh, policies created by or theorized by white women um, are really incorporated in Indian policy much earlier than uh, they are, are thought to have been. Usually scholars look at like, the Women's Bureau or the Children's Bureau at the turn of the 20th century 
to talk about how the federal government is incorporating some of those strategies of social reform. Um, but it really happens much earlier if you think about, um, if you look to the West. Right? So for me, that really opened up the conversation about when does the federal government get involved in some of these questions about um, social welfare and social programming, and that it's this question of citizenship or lack thereof that becomes an important component in that discussion. Hmm. And bringing us um, back to the micro scale, again, the intimate colonialism, um, your second chapter opens with a rather, uh, I found it a pretty striking anecdote. Uh, we're at one of the Friends of the Indians uh, conventions, the, the civil society reformers who, who took up the cause of so-called Indian uplift or assimilation. And they're, uh, these activists are throwing all these questions at Thomas Riggs, an Indian agent for the Standing Rock Reservation. And there's a fascination with every detail of every single detail of Indian life. Do, you, do they use forks and knives? Do the children stay with the widow after the father's death? What's this about, this fascination with every minutia of, of Indian life? Yeah, that's such a great example. When I found that example, I was just thrilled. But it's this list of, as you say, I don't know, maybe 30 questions that are really invasive questions about the very most private sort of moments in people's lives, right? Exactly what kind of silverware are they using? Um, and it really indicates just the level of concern about, again, intimate relationships between people and then how those people um, will behave. And that the government truly, and, and these reformers who were in many cases, helping to create federal policy, um, truly believe that the key to changing Indian people and to incorporating them into this citizenry um, was in those really small private details. Um, and I think that the, the question that I end with in that list is a question about Native men, and it says, do they not grow manly in working for their family? Um, and so... There's this effort to figure out how to make Native people behave um, along the civilized model that was a very gendered model that involved having men. In order to be a man, you had to work and you had to support your family. Um, and that women were also key to this because women were the ones who would be raising the children. And again, here that question of reproduction comes in, and especially of social reproduction, that that this idea of it's key to make sure that the next generation was assimilated. And without mothers, um, without sort of winning the hearts and minds of mothers who would then be raising those children, this whole um, effort at assimilation um, would be for naught. Hmm. So it's, they're fascinated with them, and at first glance it seems strange that they would focus on these little details. But at the same time, for them, it, those details were everything. Um, because they either were, once Native people started behaving in particular ways, it was a sign that assimilation had been successful. Mm. Right? So once they started using knives, working for their families, raising their children in a civilized manner, the federal government's job would then be finished. Right, And because it was it was going to require a lot of resources to do this, the federal government was invested in making sure that this is only temporary so that those resources would not be expended sort of in perpetuity. Um, so that's, 
it's both uh, a way of those details are both the way to change Indians and to tell when they have have been civilized. So that focus, um, while we think it's kind of odd and funny, uh, was everything for them. Uh, yeah, I think what's especially sort of odd about it is, is the this all or nothing sense that you know you couldn't maintain. Uh, your Indian identity, if you were, you know, if you happen to be adapting to um, certain conditions or taking certain elements of, you know, you know, I mean, a, a fork or a knife or any uh, commodities, that this was somehow um, indicative of the triumph over an Indian identity, as if the two were incompatible. And um, you talk in the same section about, uh, you know, what these commodities that were ending up in, in homes were imbued with, the, the fetishized commodities, you say. You write that uh, the members of the Indian service, quote, believed that the mere presence of goods could inspire changes in behavior and sensibility. What's going on here? Where does that belief come from? And, and how does that actually play out in homes? Well, that's another... Uh another uh, term that I use from sort of uh, people who've written about colonialism and colonial theory is the commodity fetish. And there was this sense among um, some of the reformers and policymakers, and you especially see it among the female uh, reformers and policymakers, that if we they would say, if we can just get Native women to, um, you know, have these sorts of things in their home, to have, right, flatware, China flatware, um, or, or forks, or, you know, sort of pictures on their wall, that the very presence of these goods somehow magically would work upon them and um, do some of that work of assimilation, right? And... In many ways, it's about um, trying to create desire for commodities within Native people, um, which comes back to this concern that they need to be taught how to work and be self-supporting. And part of that is to inculcate them with the desire for material goods. Um, but part of it is they just really believe that, you know, if they're surrounded by these objects, they will kind of try to live up to those objects. So the, one of the, the great stories I have in that section is about, you know, and it's a white female reformer telling this story, um, that a Native man sort of builds a house for his wife, and it has a wooden floor and a new stove, and that before this she had been very slovenly, but the new house sort of inspires her to keep her house clean, and then she realized she has to keep herself clean in order to keep the house clean, and it's this sort of snowball effect. And again, you see this kind of wishful thinking um, in some ways that assimilation will be easy. All we have to do is really change the environment um, that Native people are surrounded with, and it will sort of just happen. Um, and so both the, the actual physical environment is key in uh, these policymakers' plans, but then they also recognize that um, or argue that there needs to be sort of human examples of what they called right living as well. And so that's where the employees come back in as really a very important part of uh, creating a landscape that will encourage Indians to change. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I want to talk now a bit about the, the people, the employees of the Indian service. Um, I'm curious, at first, I guess, about the, some of the white employees. You write that the laborers for the Indian service, whether they're farmers or field matrons or even stockmen or freighters, menial laborers, they were intended, all of them, to serve, to serve their, their labor function but also provide this sort of exalted example. I was wondering you know, how you think laborers felt about this, particularly at a moment in American history with industrialization where in, in urban cores, you know, labor seems to be getting devalued. It becomes, you know, it's just mechanized. Um, laborers in the Indian service, um, you know, were performing all these examples. And I was wondering if this made it an attractive element of the Indian service for the workers who did go into it, whether, again, they're um, doing skilled labor or unskilled labor. Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. Um, I do, I, and it brings up sort of two things that I, I think will answer it. Um, the first is, as I mentioned, sort of Reconstruction um, and the Freedmen's Bureau were a really important model for a lot of these, um, again, the reformers who are helping to shape policy. And they are, in many ways, drawing on this model, the free labor model of the mid-19th century, right, that, that in many ways the Civil War is fought over. And by the late 19th century, um, sort of when the government has established its boarding schools and sort of set this whole program up, in many ways, yeah, that's, that is already an older model. But a lot of these programs are, really come out of this idea of, of the yeoman farmer, the um, you know the dignity of labor, and and the idea that the citizenry can be made up of these sort of small um, farmers that has is becoming obsolete even as they're putting it into effect. Um, so there's that. Now whether or not it encouraged people to take the jobs, um, certainly a lot of people who took positions in the Indian service thought about those positions as in, almost in terms of missionary positions. Now, not everyone, but there were a number of people who um, really saw those two things conflated. Yes, you were working for the government, but it was uh, very similar to being a missionary. And so in that sense, the labor that you were doing was endowed with all of these um, you know, ideas about uplifting the poor or uplifting sort of uh, the savage, quote-unquote, and Christianizing them and this sort of thing. So I think for some of the employees, that was indeed a very sort of significant part of taking those positions. Um, but I don't think it was for all of them. Mm. Um, and I, and that, but I, <laughs> I have to admit um, that I don't, I, I don't see that, um, again, for, I don't see them engaging with the labor movement hmm. um, in that way. I do, I, it, that does come in later, and it's, um, it's actually for really more of the white-collar employees um, and the federal employees union. But in terms of labor, sort of industrial labor, they're not, the employees' records that I looked at, they're not engaging that. Um, they're not thinking of themselves. Um, in that vein, but it's a good question. Yeah, in terms of um, in terms of the, the single white women who uh, you spend a chapter um, exploring, um, you know, you start you start chapter three with the story of Minnie 
well, now I'm going to have to pronounce the last name, Minnie Braithwaite. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, this is a, a, a woman from a, uh, an affluent family who goes against her family's wishes to head out west. Uh, she's undeterred even by the rather poor assignment she's received from the Indian service uh, in terms of its you know, location. What's motivating women to do this, to, to, head, out, to head out west, uh, even sometimes against uh, their family's wishes or against you know, their, other people's better judgments, I guess? What, what's going on here? <laughs> well, and, and, and again, I think this comes back to sort of what you were trying to get at in your previous question is, this is a group of women um, for whom working is somewhat new. I mean, the, many of them, and these are the, the sort of white middle class women um, whose story really drew me into, into the Indian service um, in the first place. This is a new workforce, and really, in the late 19th century, they're their counterparts are also entering sort of white-collar labor in, in urban areas uh, for the first time as well. So they're, this is a group of women who haven't thought about themselves as laborers, um, as wage laborers before, um, except maybe as teachers in county schools, where it was a, a, generally for a really short period in, in their life, probably before they were married. Um, but this... What I found in the sources about these women, what they were saying, and, and a number of them wrote memoirs, um, but they're also collections of letters, and then in their employment applications, they have a whole variety of reasons for wanting to take the jobs. Um, as I mentioned, many of them equate it with missionary service, and, and, and several of them sort of said, my parents wouldn't let me go to China or the foreign missions, and so the Indian service is kind of the fallback. Um, still exciting, still sort of exotic, but, you know, not totally overseas. Um, a number of them saw it as a place where they could get paid better than they were being paid in the county schools, um, with also a more um, sort of a definite 10-month work year uh, that wasn't always the case in, in the county schools. Um, and others just saw it as, as sort of a way to get to a part of the country they wanted to move to um, or an adventure. Um, and it, especially earlier on, um, as the government is building the Indian service in the 1880s and 1890s, a lot of the women are coming from the East and Midwest into the West. A little bit later, um, you see uh, some of these white employees also being drawn from the Western um, regions. Uh, so there's a shift in terms of where they're coming from over time. Um, and, and also in that earlier period, the salaries were fairly good. That also changes. Um, they kind of stagnate over time. But so you see people uh, listing a whole variety of reasons um, for wanting to do this kind of work. And Minnie Breathway, who you bring up, I mean, she really is doing it because she's one of these people who wants to go to China. She also, at least the way she self-writes um, her memoir and describes herself, is as a sort of headstrong, um, you know, girl who wants an adventure, and and this is how she's sort of thumbing her nose at her mother um, in the process. Now, I, I was embarrassed when I read this book because I, I had previously been totally unaware um, of the extent of uh, of native labor in the mm -hmm. Indian service, um, and it's sort and some of the examples you provide sort of uh, again uh, explode some of the 
perhaps myths, the well-intentioned myths about, you know, the, the nature of the Indian service. Uh, you, you actually point out that in 1899, the number peaked at a 45% of the workforce, at least in the school service, was native labor. Um, I wonder if you can talk a bit about this, um, you know, this tension that you're finding between, you know, working for the very colonial bureaucracy, which was enacting dispossession or, or you know, cultural um, forced cultural change um, and how you know why what drove Indians to work for the Indian service and how did they end up reshaping the nature of this employment did they fit to the exact expectations that that were laid out by the government sure and that's I mean I I too was really surprised to find the, the enormous numbers of native people working in the Indian service it was really something that was mentioned here or there, um, you know, people sort of mentioned that students, former students from the boarding schools would go to work in the Indian service or had few options besides that, but it wasn't until I was really looking at um, the lists of employees in the annual report um, of the commissioner and realized just how many were Native, That and, and that was really a moment when I I really thought, well, what's going on here, right? And I did start by being interested in the white women, and um, and I do tell their story, but I think ultimately by the end of this process, I was much more interested in these Native employees and their experiences. And and it comes back to this, uh, this theory that policymakers were working under, right? And the theory of intimate colonialism and the idea of exchanging or, or substituting white employees for Native parents, that was a great theory, but they needed enormous amounts of labor. The Indian service never was appropriated as much money as they would have liked. And so they turned to Native labor for two reasons. One, it's a lot cheaper, and especially for a lot of the support positions, um, they could pay Native men and women much less. And they also argued that, again, for the returning students, um, it served a practical um, or ideological, both, I guess, uh, reason, which was that there really were no jobs on the reservation, and they didn't want these students to sort of fall back or what they would say is return to the blanket. And so by giving them jobs in the service, they could sort of help continue to encourage them. Um, but they also thought that, again, with this emphasis on examples, that return students who were working and earning money offered a good example to the, the people living on reservations of how to act civilized, right, and the benefits of that, they would have said. Um, but as I said at the beginning, often this was about the fact that they were less expensive to employ. Um, so that's sort of decide the policymakers' point of view, but why would Native people take these jobs? And that's a, that was definitely one of my questions. And I was very lucky as a researcher in that somebody just sort of happened to mention to me that, you know, the federal government kept personnel files on individual employees, um, and they're not in the National Archives. They're in a, a holding facility in St. Louis called the National Personnel Records Center. And um, because of that sort of offhand remark, I was able to access um, the personnel files of a number of, of Native women. And uh, I couldn't have answered some of these questions or attempted to answer them without these files, um, which 
have just a phenomenal amount of information in them. They have a lot of correspondence from the women themselves to the commissioner, to their superiors um, about their positions, about themselves, um, their job applications on which they often state why they want those positions. Um, and so I was able to draw on that to, to start to answer some of those questions. And what I found was that for Native people, uh, for many Native people, the idea of being able to stay in their communities um, but have a job that paid a wage, um, that was actually a hard thing to do. There were very few wage-paying jobs on reservations or even around them um, for most of them. And so for these students who were returning from the boarding schools, um, their options were really limited if they wanted to stay with their families and communities, and many of them did. Um, but the Indian Service offered a wage-paying position, um, and sometimes a fairly good one, uh, again, at the beginning, and, and that's not always the case. And for many of them also, it became sort of staying in their family and staying with their families and in their communities had sort of another level um, if we remember that, that the whole point of intimate colonialism was to break up those ties. Um, and so going back and living in their communities wasn't just about sort of wanting to, to go back there. It also was a very political statement about remaining in their tribe, remaining with um, those communities that the government was very actively trying to destroy. Um, and again, taking a job in the Indian service often helped them do that. Um, for those employees who are parents, it also lets them stay, um, who, are, who are able to get jobs in, in the boarding schools, it helps them stay with their children. And you definitely see um, employees talking about wanting, when they ask for jobs or ask for transfers, to stay in schools where their children can also be enrolled. Um, and, and very deliberately trying to keep an eye on their children and to, uh, you know, even if it's only in a small way, uh, try to ameliorate the, the effects of those boarding schools. Um, most children are taken from their families and, and put in the schools um, and are lonely, um, possibly, you know, abused or neglected by the staff. But if your father or mother is on the staff, um, you know, they have, they're with you, um, and sometimes are able to keep the other employees from mistreating you. And, and I saw this in several cases where I had very clear evidence of um, school superintendents being fairly irritated with employees who they talked about, um, you know, disrupting the discipline of the school. But it's clear that what those employees were doing was protecting their children. Um, so for Native people, there are economic reasons. There are larger political reasons based on sort of maintaining a tribal identity. Um, and then for Native parents, there are, there are these very specific efforts to um, protect their children. If I can pull out one more anecdote um, about the boarding schools. Um, you, you know, you mentioned, well, there's, there's been, there's a, a sort of a focus, um, you know, quite understandably on the, uh, the abuse uh, that existed in the boarding schools. Um, but you, what you don't hear about is people like uh, Esther Burnett Horn, 
who mm. you mentioned here, who is, uh, you know, she is a Shoshone woman who uh, attended an Indian school and moved on to teach in the Indian service. And if I can just read a quote from her here, she, she recognized, quote, the aim of the Indian service was to divorce our people from our heritage and to assimilate us into the dominant culture. I was not in sympathy with this endeavor. I wanted to provide my students with the same security and sense of self that my Indian teachers, Ruth and Ella, had instilled in me. This is a, a very conscious a politically conscious, culturally conscious woman in the Indian service uh, participating in this labor that uh, she recognizes and objects to. Um, it sort of gives a new twist to some of the dynamics and, and playing out in the boarding schools than simply a story of white teachers uh, abusing Indian students. Right. And, and she is one of the few Native um, teachers for whom I have a memoir, and her memoir is just really wonderful. Um, and she is very interesting because, as you say, she herself was a student um, at Haskell and then joins the Indian service and um, has a very long career and, in fact, stays in for the transition between um, what scholars often talk about as sort of the assimilation period and then John Collier and his um, administration, which was much more... Um, willing to talk about um, or bring Native culture into uh, the schools. And, and yes, you're right. She sees the Collier administration as a moment when she doesn't have to be hiding what she is doing anymore. Um, and, she was, and as you say, she was very deliberate. And she also, I think it's really important that she references the teachers that meant something to her were also both Native teachers um, and that she uh, saw this as, something very important that she could contribute to Native children. And she actually refuses to go back um, to her own reservation and teach there, even though she's offered a position, because she felt that um, she was doing, sort of, as she says, sort of more good among students who are far away from home um, because she really understood that experience and wanted to be there for them. And, I mean, it's this was not contested. I mean, one of the things that I... Um, look at in the book is the debate within Native communities and especially among um, the members of the Society of American Indians, sort of uh, a, a group of um, well-educated in, in terms of Western culture, uh, Native leaders and, and people who are very politically involved. And there are huge debates about whether or not Indians should serve in the Indian service. Um, and Horn um, is not involved in those particular debates, but obviously falls on the side that they, they could do some good. And there were important reasons to have Native teachers. Um, other people, like Carlos Montezuma, who had himself worked in the Indian service, um, was very adamantly against it and really saw Native employees as um, helping the federal government with its colonial endeavors in a way that, um, you know, his argument was if all of them just stopped the government could not fulfill all of the programs that it was trying to run, right? And so, um, so there is great debate, and it, it ultimately splits the Society of American Indians um, quite drastically um, over this question. So, um, it, I try to talk about how you know these are these are survival strategies that people are using, um, but they're also debating whether or not that is the best kind of strategy to confront these these very um, these colonial policies of trying to destroy Native culture. Hmm. Now, as, uh, as we get to the, the 
latter part of this interview, um, want to ask a, a few bigger questions. Also, want to say that we've we've talked a lot about some of the information in this book, a lot of the stories in this book, but th this is just the tip of the iceberg um, in terms of what this book explores, both thematically and in, in many of the stories it tells. So I, I highly encourage uh, people to take up where this interview left off and, and read the whole book. Um, but in terms of a, a few bigger questions, I want to sort of ask you, what do you see the legacy of the Indian service as, um, both in terms of the American state as well as um, in terms of, you know, how Indian identity and survival has uh, has been shaped in the 20th century? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, I'll take the American state question first, but I, I want to actually focus on its legacy for Native people. Um, in terms of uh, its I think I, I gesture to a couple of things that I think are interesting in terms of state building. Um, one that I one that I don't really elaborate on, but I point to is that there are definitely links between the way that the federal government structured the Indian Service and what it does in the Philippines, um, and that's very much sort of a been a debate about how much Indian policy influenced Philippines policy, but if you look at the actual personnel, um, there was movement between um, the Indian service, the Philippine service, and teachers in Puerto Rico and things like that. So um, scholars of colonialism like to talk about circuits of knowledge, and I think that by looking at the actual employees, you see them actually moving through these different um, services in different positions and carrying their knowledge with them. Um, the other sort of legacy for the state, um, the American state that I, I really did talk quite a bit about is um, when the Indian Service is set up, it's constantly discussed in terms of a temporary bureau and temporary program. Um, and this idea that, you know, again, sort of in one generation, it can disappear. And I start, again, sort of right after the Civil War, and I bring it up through um, the the 1930s. And what's interesting is that by the 1920s, and this is bigger than the Indian Service, but the Indian Service provides a very good illustration. The government had instituted civil service reform um, in the 1890s. And so beginning in the 1890s, and especially in the Indian Service, you have career employees who are staying in their positions uh, for a very long time and getting old, growing old in their positions, and there's no retirement policy. Um, and so this is a sort of becomes a crisis in the Indian service as well as throughout the government. So what do we do with these old employees who cannot retire but are seen as very loyal and hardworking? Um, and it, it strikes up debates in Congress, um, and the federal employees themselves form the Federal Employees Union, um, to argue for a pension. It's one of their major planks is to talk about retirement um, and pensions. Now, to be fair, one of the other major problems in the Indian service was the high rate of turnover. So they had these sort of opposite problems, one that people don't stay in very long and there's constant turnover, and one that there are these people who've been in forever and are really old and can't do their jobs, but nobody wants to kick them out. And again, this is primarily white employees, um, and it has slightly different ramifications for the Native employees. But what you see is the government does pass um, in 1920 a Retirement um, Act and a pension plan. And so what I argue is that, somewhat ironically, 
all of these, and again, white employees who work for over 30 years or reach the age of 70 in the Indian service end up with retirement pensions. And the plan at the beginning had been that this will be a temporary bureau. The government will stop spending money on in its Indian wards, and you know that will no longer be an outlay. And that's what they're trying to do. But at the same time, they create this new set of dependents with its retired, its own retired employees. Um, so there's a real irony there. Um, and Native employees are initially um, actually kept out of that legislation for a variety of. Um, somewhat complicated reasons, but they are not, most of them are not um, eligible because of the way the civil service exam works. So they don't get it for 10 years. They don't get pensions for 10 years after most white employees. And most of the Native employees aren't in positions that were going to be pensioned anyway. So there's this economic disparity that, that ends up being built into the system. But that comes back to your question about labor, too, because it is in these white-collar unions um, where you really see the employees of the Indian service engaging with the sort of questions about uh, labor and the labor movement. Hmm. So those those two legacies um, for the state, I think, are, are important in, in the way we think about state building, and the Indian service has not um, been included in those discussions um, to the extent I think it should be. But I think the bigger legacy and the one that... Um, in some ways is more important was the legacy uh, for Native people. And for me, um, looking at uh, some of the really heroic stories about Native employees who were in the Indian service, um, it it was um, a generation that had some limited options that was enduring, um, you know, this incredible assault on their culture, on their um, political identity, um, and not to mention sort of the the economic difficulties that they were facing as this generation um, sort of that was that was the first um, in the boarding schools. And that generation um, and many, many of those people worked maybe briefly, maybe for a very long period of time in the Indian service. And um, it really just so many of the people we think about as political leaders at that time um, made that decision. And again, some of them at, at the end of it, like Carlos Montezuma, decided that was a bad decision. But it served as a really important moment for them um, for economic survival, but also it really helps build um, this idea of an intertribal identity um, that, again, the Society of American Indians which was a really important political group, many of those members uh, were Indian service employees, and they draw upon that experience to talk about the things that Native nations have in common, particularly their relationship with the federal government, and to, to talk about the kinds of solutions that the future might bring and what Native people could do. So I think for Native nations, that people of this generation at the turn of the century, it's about two generations, were really able to use the Indian service as an important strategy um, to survive politically, um, to sort of create these intertribal dialogues that become, you know, much, you know, sort of the foundation of much of what happens in into the 20th century, um, and I and and just keeping their families together. And one thing I tried to do in the book, and I, I only do it with um, one or two people, but I think it's a really useful way for historians to think about some of these choices that people make, um, is if you look generationally, 
Um, and at one point I look at the family of a man named Sherman Norton, who was a um, hoopa, and he was a carpenter at the hoopa boarding school, who is one of these Native employees that's constantly getting in trouble because he's clearly protecting his children at the boarding school, and he also um, complains about the disparate wages that Native people are, are paid. Um, and his story, in some ways, is one of sort of constant struggle with the agent and at one point, he you know loses his job for a series of years, and then then comes back to work when the agent leaves. But his son, um, who also works in the Indian Service, becomes uh, tribal chair for the Hupa tribe for uh, for part of the the struggle um, in the fifties over termination, um, and the Hupa tribe is not terminated. Um, and then his grandson uh, helps found. Uh, the Native American Studies program at Humboldt State University and um, became a scholar of Native American studies, Native American history. And I think that, um, you know, looking at what Sherman Norton, the grandfather, did is give his son and his grandson both, you know, a a stable um, sense of who they are. He, He manages to stay in their community and stay involved on his own reservation with his own tribe, um, and that his legacy is really then what his son and grandson were also able to do, um, as well as other members of the family. So, again, I think looking at these individual stories um, and using sort of even carrying the idea of intimate colonialism out further, or in my case, it's you know social history and what the everyday experiences of people are thinking about those generationally demonstrates sort of the really clear importance of the decisions that that people at the turn of the century were making. And I I don't want to say that the Indian service was ideal because it wasn't, but it gives them a tool that they're able to use um, for this cultural and political survival. The law of unintended consequences, right? (laughs) Exactly. And there are a lot of tragic stories, and I do talk about some of those as well. Um, But, yes, there were there were many unintended consequences to the government's decision to hire Native people. Well, we've been uh, talking about Federal Fathers and Mothers, a social history of the United States Indian Service, 1869 to 1933, by uh, Kathleen D.K. Hill from the University of North Carolina Press. Um, really enjoyed this conversation today. Um, and, and again, I encourage listeners to pick up a copy of this book. I think it's an important book, not just uh, for students of Native American studies and Native American history, but also uh, American political development, or just a, a, a very fantastic example of a social history. Uh, which, um, And now I want to try out a, a new concluding question for you today. I'm sorry you're the guinea pig for this, um, but we usually like to, I usually like to ask a lighter question at the end, and I realize that asking what are you working on now is actually not a lighter question for uh, people who have just gone through the exhaustive process of publishing a book. Uh, so I will ask you if, uh, if we can give it a shot. Um, given that this is a, a podcast on uh, Native American studies, I want to ask you what uh, the most influential book or one of the most influential books uh, that you've read, you read particularly as a graduate student in Native American studies that, that perhaps shaped uh, your scholarship. Uh, if not the most, then certainly profoundly. So as to avoid the, uh, you know, the one, the final question, yeah. All right. Well, I will say that had you asked what I was working on next, that wouldn't have been a hard question because, um, and, and so I'm going to answer it as well. <laughs> yeah, true. But uh, basically, there were so many stories that I came across 
in writing this book that I could not put in the book. Um, there was too many. And so I'm taking a number of the stories that I really wanted to follow up and, and uh, following up on those. So I'm enjoying my time um, in the sort of post-publication bliss. Um, but in terms of uh, most influential book, there are a number, but I have to say, and it didn't come up um, in our conversation, but it should have, uh, Phil Deloria's Indians in Unexpected Places, I think, was really uh, an example of both how an author's voice can be entertaining and um, you know, just a, a really wonderfully elegant read, uh, but also a book that sort of really shifted the way that, that I thought about Native people um, at the turn of the century and what they were doing and, and um, how they were engaging um, white society. And so, um, again, both in terms of opening up subject matter and in terms of being an incredibly engaging writer, um, I think that book was one that was very important Wonderful. Um, for me. Well, that was a well, question well answered. I'm glad that worked out well. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us again. Once again, we've been discussing Federal Fathers and Mothers, a social history of the United States Indian Service. Thank you so much, Dr. Cahill. Oh, and thank you uh, for doing this, Andrew. Absolutely. I appreciate it. You've been listening to an interview with Kathleen Cahill, author of Federal Fathers and Mothers, a social history of the Indian Service, 1869 to 1933 from the University of North Carolina Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com or track us down on our Facebook page where you can post questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and I hope you join us again next month for another new book in Native American Studies. Thanks. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.